Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Raj Basord, and I'm a consultant psychiatrist based at the Bethlehem Royal Hospital in South London. Joining me today is Professor Joel Russell, Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry at the Institute of Psychiatry, University of London, now attached to King's College London, and also um, an uh, honorary consultant at the Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospitals. Uh, we're talking to Professor Russell today um, on his book review, which has been published in the um, June edition of the British Journal of Psychiatry. And in the book review section, he's done a book review of a book by Carmen Khalil, Bad Faith, Forgotten History of Family and Fatherland. Um, but to start, uh, Professor, the, the book review section, actually, of the journal is one of my favourite sections. I find it very uh, uh, interesting to read, and I actually like doing book reviews because it forces me to read much more than I would otherwise. Um, do you like doing book reviews? I'm very careful not to take on too many because they're very hard work, really. So, but this particular one, I chose to do it. The, usually the college approaches you and asks if you're willing, but in this case I approached the college and had a bit of a tussle to get this accepted. Ah, that's very interesting. So one of the um, reasons why you were interested in doing this book review is because it was tackling an issue that you feel is very important around the reporting of case histories. Yes. Um, Carmen Khalil felt very strongly that psychiatrists should not write up case histories of their patients. And she said that this was unethical and that it was not accepted practice, and that if a doctor nowadays did this, he would be liable to disciplinary procedures. Uh, I think this is only a half-truth. I think that um, it is possible to publish psychiatric case histories, but it's very difficult. What she blamed the doctor for was fictionalizing the case history, which meant changing some of the details so that it would not be recognized by anyone, including the patient himself. And that is actually incorrect. It's a rather important detail, which I'd be glad to elaborate on later. Well, let's come back to the case history point, um, which is the central uh, point of your book review in a way, that you, one of the reasons why you want to took this book review. But let's go back to what actually is this book about? Yes, the book is a good book. It, it has two themes. The first theme is a very detailed history of the Second World War in France, the occupation of France by the Nazis and the Vichy regime. During that time, France went through a horrendous time, but there had been fascists with a strong foothold in the country and many of them chose to collaborate with the Nazis and with the Vichy government. And she picked on one particular henchman of the Nazis, whose name was Jean Dacquier, and went into enormous detail about his family history for good reasons, because it turned out that he, he was a villain. He was the person who orchestrated the deportation of Jews from France. Thousands of them went to Auschwitz and their death, and they included several thousand children. So it was a horrible chapter in the history of France during the war, and he deserved all the uh, uh, 
disdain, horror that she piled on him. So that was the main theme. The second theme was it so happens that Jean d'Arquier had a daughter called Anne, whom he more or less abandoned in England to be brought up by an English nanny. Uh, Anne d'Arquier, in spite of really very unfortunate circumstances, poverty even, did very well. She was a, a clever girl and a clever lady. And she decided to become a doctor and then a psychiatrist. And um, it was her psychiatric practice which was the other important theme in this book because Anne d'Arquier treated the author, Carmen Khalil, in the course of psychotherapy. So it's quite interesting that Carmen Khalil herself got to know and Dr. Anne Darkey had great respect for her, great affection for her, and was grateful to her for having helped her at a difficult time during her life. And so far, so good. Uh, but she discovered, Carmen Khalil discovered a book written by Dr. Robert Hobson and she identified in the book a case history under a pseudonym called, uh, a patient was called Sue. And she concluded that Sue and Anne Darkey were the same people. And Carmen Khalil was very resentful of various clinical and mainly clinical details being put in Dr. Hobson's book and she attacked him uh, venomously and mercilessly, really, accused him of uh, unethical practice, and also criticized him as a bad therapist and indirectly responsible for Dr. Anne Darkey's death, because um, she died from an overdose of alcohol and drugs and the possibility that she committed suicide. In fact, it's, it's a very dramatic account. Um, I've uh, interviewed Carmen Khalil for my All in the Mind program on BBC Radio 4, and she believed that she might have been one of the very last patients um, that might have um, seen um, Anne alive, in that actually she was due to have a session yes, with Anne yes. that day, and she went to the house and yes. rang the doorbell, and no one came, and it turned out that Anne was probably dead inside the house at the time. Um, now, this criticism of um, the psychotherapist whom you knew and yes. who was writing up the case studies. There's, there's something about this criticism that in, you feel particularly strongly about. Well, it, I think it was unfair at a personal level. Dr. Hobson was a member of staff of Bethlehem and the Maudsley in those days, still as highly respected as it is now. I knew him as a colleague and he was uh, an excellent psychotherapist. Um, and the book was interesting because it showed humility and courage on his part. He, it was, the idea of his book was to teach would-be psychotherapists, and he thought it important to describe the patients who did poorly. And he described this patient, Sue, as one of his therapeutic failures. 
and he blamed himself quite bitterly over it. He said that um, he was trying to indicate how the transference between him and the patient went wrong and in spite of all his efforts she deteriorated, had several episodes of disturbed behaviour and eventually he thought she committed suicide. So I think it requires courage and honesty to be able to put that down in writing because most doctors when they write up where they write up their papers, are boastful a bit, aren't they? They want to show themselves in a good light. He didn't do that. I think it was genuine humility on his part. He wanted to reveal his mistakes. Um, it's true that he described Sue as uh, somebody who from time to time uh, did become disturbed, and he gives details of that. And I, I think these details were rather hurtful, I suppose, to anyone who knew Dr. Andarki. There are a couple of issues here that are very interesting in terms of, first of all, this issue about the controversy of reporting cases and the feelings this seems to create and the controversy that's generated as a result of reporting real-life cases, even if you attempt to disguise them. But there's also another interesting issue, which is reporting your relationship with the patient in, in the case. Yes. Um, and... We're thinking about the point that you made about what we can learn from this situation. Yes. If there's a problem to the, extent, to, the, to the extent that people are discouraged from reporting cases and also what happens in therapy, um, you seem to be arguing this has serious implications for psychiatry and in particular training. Yes. Um, it's a very interesting subject. I've always had a gut feeling about it that this was the case, when I think, well, how can I explain it to other people? How can I persuade them? It may not be that obvious to the modern generation of psychiatrists because they've moved a long way away from the actual roots of psychiatry. Uh, after all, every psychiatrist believes in the individuality of the patient. In fact, any every good doctor would say the same. If you look at an account of a patient, you want to see how the illness, you don't want to see just as a case of depression, you want to see how the patient became afflicted with the depression, how he struggled with the depression, how he did his best to survive it. So you want to see the personal side of it as well. And what you mentioned, Raj, is also very important, especially to psychotherapists. If you treat patients, the nature of the relationship between the psychiatrist and the patient is supremely important. Uh, it's called transference, um, and it's a means of getting the patients to improve, but it can go wrong. And it's very important to learn from the times when it does go wrong. Well, one of the things you're concerned about in your review is the decline in the reporting of case histories in academic journals. And if we go back, some people would argue, to the start of modern psychiatry, people would say that that began with Freud and his reporting of, of case studies. And in fact, there's been a recent revision of thinking that maybe the importance of Freud is almost at a literary level in terms of the narrative that he provided. Yes. So, so this, this move of psychiatry away from the case history, as, as you've charted um, in terms of the decline of reports in journals, is something that's concerning you. Yes. Um, apart from anything else, um, modern psychiatric journals and their papers tend to be very boring. 
you you get really uh, detached accounts. You you get ratings and you get answers to questionnaires and you get discussions about neurochemicals and neurotransmitters uh, about series of patients uh, as opposed to individuals and about populations of patients about health services all these things are very very important i'm not trying to belittle them but the patient the individual the personality has been squeezed out of the medical journal so that it is rather boring reading as a matter of fact the current editor of the british journal of psychiatry concedes this. He's written in the journal recently that he wants to find a way of causing debate and interest so that interest returns to the psychiatric journal. To attempt a defence of these editors of these journals that you describe as rather boring and dry, they might defend themselves and say, well, all that's happened is the journals in psychiatry have become more scientific, that they recruit large numbers of, of subjects they do complex statistical analysis so that what you are referring to as boring and dry is just science. It's science in action. And that the, the clinical case studies, the problem with them is they're not very scientific. Yes, that's a very uh, presumptuous view uh, because it contrasts science with personal aspects of patients. And it's a false dichotomy. The two should be worked through together. Um, I, I don't want to bring in too many personal points, but I have done one or two bits of research in my time which have had some influence on the scientific community. Uh, I described bu bulimia nervosa. I had 30 patients in my series. In my paper, I included three personal personal case histories. This, just, to, just to add the point, this is the very first report in the scientific literature of bulimia nervosa. Yes. Yeah. yes. I couldn't have done that mm -hmm. if I hadn't studied psychiatric case histories. Not just for publication, but so that I could formulate the material and put it together in my mind mm. and come out with clinical principles about the nature of the disorder and the mechanisms, what mm. made these unfortunate young women overeat and then vomit, for example. I had a series of 30 patients. I, this I look upon as clinical science, as opposed to the editors who say it's not science. Now, I know it was a series of 30 patients, but it had to be built up one by one. And I had to start off with individual case histories and then meld them together and analyze the principles of why this was a new disorder, a new syndrome. And to go back to why sometimes another piece of work, it's easier to work and talk from personal experience. My subject is mainly nowadays eating disorders, but I also came across eight women with anorexia nervosa who had improved, some of them, sufficiently to become fertile and to have families. And I had these eight women who between them had nine children. And I found that an uncommon aspect of anorexia nervosa is the mother who starves her child. And I thought it was very important to alert colleagues to that, the risk to the children of women with anorexia nervosa. 
this wasn't well known. It, it was, uh, I was quite unaware. I'd worked in the field for 20 years and I'd never come across this. Once I found it, I got a series of patients and I thought it very important to describe it. Now, this was after the watershed of 1995. I didn't even bother with the British Journal of Psychiatry because I, I was uh, aware of their very strict rules. But I approached another prestigious psychiatric journal, drew the attention of the editor to the risks, saying, I can't get the permission of these mothers. They won't like me to write to say they were starving their children. I wouldn't be so f foolish as to ask for their permission. And the advice I got was, uh, find ways of disguising their identity. And I made fairly minor changes. I changed the sort of job that they did. Uh, one of them, I said, came from Australia, although she didn't. Things of that sort. And I also was careful not to publicize the paper. Uh, I gave no interviews or anything. So it appeared in a proper medical journal and nobody came to me and identified herself. So I thought here was a publication that was useful because it indicated the risk that there was. And I thought that that sort of work must be reported somehow. So in a way, you're saying something rather profound about the nature of the knowledge base of psychiatry and the, and the way that we find out things. These days, because of the requirements of academic journals for large-scale studies and statistical analysis, people, people resort to the laboratory and the brain scan for example. And that seems to be the only way people think today in psychiatry that we find out stuff about people or about patients. What you're arguing is that there's another way of finding out stuff yes. about people and patients, which is to yes. talk to them yes. and get to know them and get to know their lives. And the thing, the, the thing then becomes, how do you report that if you don't do that in the, in the, in the nature of a case series? Yes, that's the basic aspect of what I like to call clinical science, where the patient is at the centre of the study. You can't study psychiatry without the patient being at the root of the study, and the patient should therefore not be extruded. Um, our colleagues we know well in America, Professor Paul McHugh and Dr. Philip Slavney, wrote a little book called Perspectives of Psychiatry which is invaluable, and they put it very well. They said every psychiatrist, when he learns his trade, learns a psychiatric interview. And the psychiatric interview and the case history are the tools of his trade. And by it's how you get to know the patient. You exchange words and thoughts, and you get a description much, much more lively and vital than a questionnaire. Although questionnaires have their place. And they call it the narrative. You use the word yourself, the story of the psychiatric patient. And by eliciting it, you start the, the transference relationship is bound to develop. So I'm mentioning it because psychotherapists I know would agree with me, but it isn't just psychotherapists. It's the, every psychiatrist needs to be able to do this and needs to be able to utilize the material he gets from from the patient uh, because this is the essence of 
his experience, his suffering, and so on. And it even phenomenology has an alienating effect. You read a case history, and you'll find that the patient has paranoid delusions and auditory hallucinations, instead of saying what they actually are. If you use these technical words, you censor the actual personal experience of the patient, which should always be put in, I think. Is this a worldwide phenomenon? Is it the case that psychiatric journals and psychiatric research and the profession throughout the world you think are suffering a decline in interest in the case study, the case history? I think it started off with the British Journal of Psychiatry because I was on the editorial board of this other journal I mentioned, was Psychological Medicine. And when I had crossed swords with the British Journal of Psychiatry, I reported this to at a committee of psychological medicine. They were totally nonplussed. They hadn't thought of it. They hadn't come across it. But right away, they issued a series of rules and they were being cautious about it. At that time, I spoke to French colleagues and American colleagues. They didn't know why the British were so sensitive, but it spread certainly to America. Uh, the American journals are just as fussy as the British journals. So what's to be done, then, about this problem? Because you, you, th- you think it's a serious problem. Yes. Um, I, th- I think it's going to be quite difficult because there's been a culture change among our research colleagues. Uh, I think that uh, for colleagues to say, well, you, your work isn't scientific by definition, because you're interested in case histories. Having this false dichotomy, I think this attitude is very pervasive, and therefore it will be quite hard work to change it. Um, I think we, we have probably to, to work with the editors of journals and point out something that they must be discovering, that without these case histories, their journals are becoming very boring. Perhaps that will motivate them, but it will be hard work, I think. The criticism of the case history approach, though, also includes the idea that you have to trust the person writing the case study in a kind of more deeper, in a deeper, more profound sense, that in a a sense you always have to trust people writing papers, but with a a study that is more quantitative, often there will be a group of authors, and um, there's a sense in which... Um, what they're reporting, given it's been measured by a brain scanner mm-hmm. or a, a questionnaire, is somehow seen as more objective. Yes. And the thing that we're worried about when we're reading a case history is, was it really like that? Yes. Or has the, the author coloured it so much with their own bias that it's difficult to know the truth? And this, this is a problem that even dogs the original Freudian case histories now. Pe- people followed those, those original cases up into, into many decades later on into life and asked them, was it really like that? And there's still some controversy to this day about whether what Freud reported was really what happened. Yes. Uh, well, F- Freud's work was, of course, the foundation of psychoanalysis. And so... The level of interpretation and uh, speculation in the psychoanalytic literature was enormous. And I take your point, I think it's true. The case history can have a great deal of objectivity. Uh, There are clinical measures which can be objective. 
uh, the dates, the evolution of the illness, and um, measures like body weight, all the and blood tests and so on, all these are important. You can and you should always verify what the patient says with a relative, another informant, so as to make sure and say that you, you've checked on this and it is the case. Uh, or you, you might get uh, evidence from outside bodies if it's a forensic case where difficulties are enormous in writing up case histories. It may have gone into the public domain so that you do have an, another source of verification. You, you're left with having to say you're not sure if the patient is denying a great deal. And you have to say you think that this patient is denying that her health is in danger because she's too thin, for example, in an anorexic case. And there you expose your own uncertainty. And I think that's valuable. It's a valuable part of the teaching. And how are you going to study patient denial and um, obfuscation and uh, deception and self-deception? How are you going to study that if you can't report it? So what you seem to be arguing is that one can examine the way a case is reported. You can look at the use of the language, um, the kind of reservations that the writer or caveats the writer puts in, and you can make a judgment to some extent. There's also, and it's interesting you bring up your classic and original bulimia paper, there is a sense in which there's a replicability issue as well. I mean, if no one else observed bulimia in the way that you observed it, it was all the same pattern, then the paper would have died yes. a, a, an obscure death. But the reality was, the minute you, what was very interesting, the minute you described it, clinicians all over the world began seeing the same yes, thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so in a way, just as one, one awaits a brain scanning study to be replicated, uh, case histories can be replicated. Yes, yes, that's, uh, you're absolutely right. I was amazed that my bulimia paper appeared in 1979. A year later, in 1980, DSM-3 described uh, bulimia as opposed to bulimia nervosa and they got a few things wrong but it was an impact that was very rapid. So do you think that we're going to also lose out in psychiatry in terms of the kind of people recruit into psychiatry if the case history is allowed to die that will end up with physicists basically <laughs> choosing to become psychiatrists people who can operate a brain scanning machine? Well, there's a risk of that, but it's more likely that the recruits and the young doctors will be corrupted by the system because there's good evidence, isn't there, that uh, entrants to medical studies are always people who want to help the sick and they're sincere in these beliefs. And I think it's just that uh, the system is doing its utmost to defeat their, their more humanitarian aspirations. Now, there's one final criticism I want to put to you of your argument though which is and I, I've spoken to Carmen Khalil herself and she defends herself robustly in her book on, on many different levels um, and it would be worth people listening to the All in the Mind program that's on the BBC Listen Again part of the BBC website but one of the points she makes is it's all very well for you doctors to say how valuable it is to write up and report these case studies and why they should be published but you don't really appreciate what it's like to be a patient being written up and that that's the key point, that if you're a patient and you read about yourself 
in the in this way, it can be very disconcerting or very distressing. Yes, um, I've been talking about the extreme case, where, for example, the forensic case, where you've got no hope of getting the agreement of the patient. Now, in a high proportion of cases, it is right to give the patient's consent. So what you do is you write out a draft of the case history and you show it to them and you say, do you agree? And they may say, well, I don't quite like the way you say I don't get on with my husband. And you say, fine, how would you like me to say it? So you, you can negotiate and you can end up with a mutually agreed version of it. And that can happen in a majority of cases. But there are some cases where you can't. And I think this requires more thought. And I've had a further thought when you asked me what should be done about this. There should be more debate about these difficult cases. Uh, in, under what conditions can you publish without the patient's consent? And what method should be used? Um, we're familiar with what the editors say. You can change minor details of the case history, which is what Freud did. So it does require further discussion, and the right balance must be reached between patient confidentiality, which is, of course, very important, and yet the opportunity to learn from one's patients within the realm of clinical science. Otherwise, we'll throw out the baby with the bathwater. Professor Joe Russell, thank you very much indeed. Okay. And Professor Russell's book review is entitled, in terms of the title of the book, uh, Bad Faith, Forgotten History of Family and Fatherland by Carmen Khalil, published by Jonathan Cape in 2006. And the book review is in the book review section of the British Journal of Psychiatry in the uh, June edition of 2007.